Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode number 13, recorded on March 5th, 2019. The Cloud Pod goes all in on AWS, Azure, and GCP. Happy Tuesday, guys. How's it going tonight? Fantastic. Yeah, pretty good. You know, there's a little thing happening in San Francisco this week uh, called RSA. And I only know that because I've been accosted by vendors for the last three weeks seeing if I wanted a free Expo Pass. But uh, so there's, there's definitely some security news this week. Absolutely. And it was packed down there. I walked, uh, I walked down there for a couple of meetings today and it was pretty packed. I, I think once a conference gets to the size of uh, Dreamforce or Oracle World or even reInvent, uh, the, the amount of time and patience I have for going to those events uh, dramatically decreases. I think the ultimate uh, measure of success in running your own show as a vendor is when people don't even know what your product is anymore, but they know your, uh, they know your show as, a, as an industry standard. That's true. I, I don't really think about it as RSA, the security token right. guys and encryption. I think about it as just the conference. Yes. Yeah. Interesting uh, analysis that I had not thought of. So, all right. Well, let's get to the news this week. Uh, does everyone have their tasty beverages? I do. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I've got a ton of it. Racer 5 to get through. So I'm going to be stuck on that for a little while here. All right. Well, I guess we don't have to ask you every week. Then we'll just know Racer 5. Let's... Well, I'll let you know every week. All right, all right, keep us posted. All right, let's get into the news. So uh, Lyft has announced that they are going all in on AWS. Uh, they are doing this to enhance its marketplace and drive further growth, and they will be using it apparently to help with their self-driving car capabilities. This is you know pretty minor news. Amazon announces these all the time. But then they also filed their IPO filing this week, and the internet exploded about the fact that Lyft is paying uh, $300 million in a commitment to Amazon over the next three years, or about $100 million a year or $8 million uh, per month, depending on how you want to look at that math. You know, the, the internet is <laughs> split between the people who are like, oh my God, you could build 12 data centers for this price uh, versus the other ones saying this is a really great investment and they're doing the right thing because it's not their core competency. And so really interesting. Yeah, I wonder how much of that 100 million is uh, MongoDB licensing. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> their shares are tanked. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I had heard that, you know, Mongo's shares had uh, started taking a precipitous fall and that's because they're a very large Mongo shop at Lyft. And uh, there's some assumptions here they're going to use document DB. And that may be true, but um, that was definitely not in any of the statements that were made public. But definitely the stock market reacted to this news a little bit negatively for Mongo. It's, it's you know, you look at $100 million a year for three years, and that's one-tenth of what Snap committed to. So we should put that in perspective. <laughs> that's true. And there's a very clear revenue model, at least for Lyft, where I'm, I'm not so sure about Snap's <laughs> uh, revenue model. <laughs> They're 90% more efficient if we're going to make all, we're just going to consider now that all IT spend is equal. But, you know, the people who are out there kind of talking about the, you know, hundred millions, a ton of money and all that, they're really not thinking through the cost of labor or the cost of cooling and power and, and space in a data center, the amount of hardware, the hardware refresh cycle every three to four years, the DR capabilities, security infrastructure. Like there's a t- so much value that Lyft is getting out of going with Amazon or, or even if they got with Azure or Google this whole tired argument of, you know, the cloud is too expensive and all that. And, and it is expensive and that's a fair complaint, but there's so much other benefit that they're getting. And, you know, even the Lyft CTO here says, uh, by operating on Amazon Web Services, we're able to scale and innovate quickly to provide new features and improvements to our services and deliver exceptional transportation experiences to our growing community of Lyft riders. 
And instead of saying, you know, we're building out 12 data centers to support our global customer base of Lyft riders, um, they're focusing on making that experience great for their customers. So I, I, I think it's the right play for them. And I think it's the right play for many companies. And if you have the time and money and desire to build your own data center, then, you know, more power to you. But that doesn't mean that you should abandon AWS or assume everyone who's doing AWS just isn't smart enough to do it themselves. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't had bloody knuckles from connecting and screwing in SCSI cables day after day, then you don't you don't understand and fully fully get the benefit of spinning up a bunch of stuff with a couple of API calls. Yeah, not to mention the tax write-off. Well, it's operation, all operational expenses. No capex. Mm. No capex. True. I think we'll continue to see more and more companies uh, filing for IPO in the next couple of years and see these large commitments to Amazon or Google or Asia. So we'll continue to see the internet uh, get very angry <laughs> over these type of topics. Speaking of AWS, when I think of cloud, I think of Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn has been around since 2008. They've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to Fortune 500, including highly regulated industries. They were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS, Asia and GCP. Go to fogops.io slash thecloudpod to learn more about their Fogops services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review. I'm kind of wondering what they're doing exactly with their self-driving cars. I mean, how many, how much room is there in the market, you think, for all, of the, all the same people taking all the same data and using all the same tools to build self-driving AI cars? Is it going to be like the first market's going to win and uh, everyone's going to license their technology? Or do people really think they're going to have some kind of distinguishing features in these in these models? I don't know. Oh, that, that's interesting. What would the distinguishing features be? The, the outcome is the same. You're going to drive a car without killing people, the passengers, uh, safely within the limits of the rules of the road. Um Basically, if you're training with the same data and the same outcome, then you kind of expect that everyone's going to end up building, converging on the same um, model. Yeah, but but people all the time rewrite their chips uh, with new firmware, and it's not like the current uh, automotive provider couldn't have written in that same logic, like trading uh, gas mileage for horsepower or allowing a little more emissions or uh, circumventing the uh, speed limiter. Who knows what someone might write? Little, uh, maybe a little more aggressive algorithm that they want driving their self-driving car. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about the Deep Racer stuff that Amazon's announced, you know, that track isn't that complicated. The cars, you know, only have limited movement. Yet there's still a competition because the algorithms and the the technology is just not there yet. So. Um, I think there's a couple of things happening. One is that there's multiple players building out the self-driving car capability. And that's partially because they're all technology risks that, you know, GM or Ford doesn't want to take directly. And so they're just going to wait until one of those companies, you know, gets proof of market and can get the, the product out the door and then just buy those companies and put them yep. into their products. You know, GM did it with one of them already. So I think that's one play you have here. So there's a bunch of companies who are kind of in the boat of let's get this thing working and then we're an acquisition target for an auto manufacturer. I think in the case of Lyft and Uber and Google, maybe uh, it's more about, you know, providing taxi services that are automated without, you know, and moving away from this car based society where we all have to own two cars in our garage that sit there, you know, 20 hours of the day. 
Um, and so if they can commoditize the car and just you're paying for the usage, uh, that's a much better attractive option. I think that's where you see Lyft and Uber, kind of, that's their bet. And so I think it's, I think there's different avenues they're taking, there's different processes, but ultimately the technology, it's it's all sort of the same, LiDAR and, and short-term radar, radar and long-term radar. Um, but you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities for these companies to get snatched up. Um, if, if same thing like a car, you know, if if the Model T was the best car ever could be built, then why are these all these other uh, companies other than Ford out there in the market? So I think there is a market for multiple players and self-driving. It's just going to be a question of who. I think the ones that make the most money will be the first uh, to uh, you know get it on the scene. But after that. Who knows? It seems kind of cruel using uh, using you know thousands and thousands of Lyft drivers to generate the revenue, which is ultimately going to put them out of yeah. jobs. <laughs> it's, like, it's like digging your own grave. <laughs> Welcome to capitalism. I feel like buying time <laughs> to learn something else. Yeah, because it's going to happen whether or not they drive right now. Yeah, well, it's a big deal because you know you think about the number of hours that a truck is on the road, like a big freight truck and. A driver can only drive so many hours per day before you know the government basically says they have to have a sleep time and they have to log it. And that's but if you had an autonomous computer, it could drive nonstop through the night and you know to the destination. You could also lower the cost of shipping. You can do a bunch of things um, very quickly, which would be very interesting to our industry and to the economy. All right, let's move on to our next story. So Google has released a new CSP config management capability for Kubernetes. And so this allows um, Kubernetes admins to basically set a set of configurations and management items and assign them to multiple clusters. So right now, if you had three or four clusters and you wanted to add in um, a policy around namespaces, or you had to have a set of namespaces that every cluster has to have, like security, for example, um, that all be done per cluster, one by one, there's no automation there. And so this new CSP config management tool from Google allows you to centrally manage that across multiple um, Kubernetes clusters and allows you to manage that as a central point versus uh, all the other ways you were doing it in the past. Yeah, I think, you know, the reality, we all want one big cluster and we don't want to worry about anything, but unfortunately, that's not the way it works. So we're going to have to manage multiple clusters. We're going to want similar policies across all of them. No brainer. I think it's hard to do I think it's really hard to do one cluster. I mean, there's really not the best uh, governors in Kubernetes today. So you can't like say this this unit can only use so much CPU and this much memory and that's it. And so you have the noisy neighbor problem um, quite often. So there is sometimes a need to separate clusters based sure. on workloads. But um, the holy holy grail is that single cluster. But we're not. And we're until not quite there then, yet. yeah, being able to manage via policy across all your customers is super cool. Yeah, I'm imagining the configuration as as code, which is which is versioned is great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, GCP also has introduced new key management system client libraries. These are client libraries and code samples for cloud KMS on the GCP. They're available for C Sharp, uh, Golang, Java, Node, PHP, Python, and Peter and I's favorite, Ruby. And they have code samples for every single one of these languages. And these new libraries are offering a few new features, including uh, gRPC for communications, uh, their language idiomatic, and they have API parity. Um, across all of them, so you don't have the uh, you don't have to build your own KMS client library anymore, which is pretty nice. That's cool. I learned today that the um, the Google Cloud Terraform providers all generated code from their APIs, so no no manual work goes into any of this. I assume they've done the same thing with these um, with these SDKs too. 
So Azure uh, has announced Instant Restore for your machines that are backed up with the Azure Backup Service. Uh, basically, this allows customers to recover quickly from snapshots stored with the disks. And so basically what happens is during the normal snapshot activity, it basically creates a shadow snapshot on the side. So you basically can instantly recover that at any time instead of recovering from snapshot that went to blob storage. I love this. I wish everyone did the same thing because there's nothing worse than staging changes, um, taking snapshots of disks, and then realizing you need to roll back and finding out that actually you can't roll back that particular instance to the same state. You have to rebuild a new volume and reattach it to the to the uh, VM or in the, in the EC2. You know, you have to deploy a whole new instance because you can't update the uh, the root volumes. So this is great, and I hope everyone else follows suit. Especially if uh, you end up running into the whole uh, warming issues around virtual block volumes being uh, hydrating on demand. Ah, lazy loading. Uh, pretty, yeah, pretty degraded definitely. performance until everything is read or written once. Huge issue. I think it's nice. This is a great feature. I, I do hope maybe uh, Amazon and Google can follow suit with something very similar to this. I think that would be a good um, enhancement to the their backup capabilities as well and something that... Um, Microsoft's kind of a little bit ahead of them on. Watch out. Competition. Uh, So uh, Supermicro is uh, a little bit back Uh in the news. Uh (laughs) But not for the, uh, not, not for the, uh, the baseboard hack, but for an actual issue that was detected about five years ago, or at least uh, hypothesized five years ago, which is that um, researchers warned of security risks to the BMC controller or the baseboard management controller in the cloud. And basically, the researchers were able to compromise an IPMI card uh, from a dedicated instance that they provisioned from SoftLayer. And so they were able to basically go in and modify the IPMI car, they were able to modify the firmware, they were able to change some of the text objects, and then they terminated the instance and then requested the same instance back from IBM until they got the same one with the same serial number, the same chassis number, um, and were able to identify that while the reclamation process did remove the IPMI user they created, it didn't uh, revert the firmware that they modified or the logs uh, that were used to provision and deprovision, as well as the BMC root password remain the same between reclamation. So uh, pretty big hole and definitely a, an interesting attack vector. Uh, IBM has addressed this now, and so they say that this is no longer a problem and they have a process to reflash uh, the factory firmware back to the hosts before they get reprovisioned now in the future. But definitely a scary vulnerability that may impact other cloud providers. Sure, and you kind of wonder how many how many of these other things are still hanging out there that nobody's found. I mean, yet. it makes sense that it would be some it would be specific to bare metal services. And I was the first thing I was trying to think as well as it limited only bare metal service uh, services. If you look through the read through the document and the the attack that they did, it is not an easy process to get access to it. Um, it's doable, but it you know it does take some effort. So. I think there are some protections in the Docker layer and the hypervisor layer to keep you from some of these things. Um, but you know, with Amazon's move to Nitro, Oracle's move to out-of-band management cards for these things, I think this attack vector is starting to get somewhat limited in scope, and it's being replaced by better tooling right. that's isolated from the host network. That said, though, we don't know what we don't know. So it'd be interesting, yeah, to see. We don't know what we don't know. <laughs> and then, like, this vulnerability has been hypothesized for five years, and, you know, it took a while for them to figure out how to do it, but they've done it now. So who knows what else has been presented at Black Hat or a different security conference? And, you know, people say it's too hard, it's too difficult to do that, or they had to be the right conditions. And then, you know, someone 
comes up with a proof point and then there comes a tool that becomes a widespread heartbleed type yeah. vulnerability across there. And then, well, I mean, the, the real question though is, okay, so how many uh, non-hyperscale cloud providers have this uh, issue latent out there, either smaller regional providers or just enterprises who are you know, potentially open to internal bad actors? Yeah, it's definitely not a part of my physical infrastructure that I really thought about as an attack vector, yeah. but it's definitely something I'll think about now. <laughs> RightScale, uh, or as we talked about last week, Flexera, <laughs> has released the State of the Cloud report. Um, and the interesting findings in it is that they seem to believe that Azure is gaining ground on AWS. Um, and that's based on the fact that there's a 52% increase between com- people who completed the survey and said they were adopting Azure versus AWS. Overall, the report was a little bit boring, in my opinion. They didn't really state anything that wasn't very obvious to me from an empirical evidence perspective, just talking to people at you know, reInvent or at different uh, cloud events that I go to. Um, Corey, who was on a few weeks ago, he actually took them to task pretty hard on Twitter. Um, he pointed out that you know, they had questions like, you know, are you using um, outposts from Amazon, for example? And you know, thirty-two nice. percent of the people answered yes, they're <laughs> using outposts. But outposts, That's the, awesome. outposts hasn't been released yet as a product. So, <laughs> so a, you know, why is that question even there? But number two, it now you know puts that whole survey kind of in an interesting light. So I don't know how much I really believe in this survey or how much you should take it for you know for gospel. But uh, it definitely got picked up by the news cycles and a lot of, a lot of headlines uh, flashing around over the last week about Azure gaining on AWS, which may or may not be completely accurate in this uh, somewhat unscientific survey. That yeah. Well, you also, which surveys are scientific? You know, people. <laughs> I think the the proof there is people are lying. Seems kind of contradictory to the um, the revenue reports from a couple of weeks ago. Well, I mean, we definitely do see Azure's revenue growing significantly and growing at a somewhat faster pace than um, Amazon's. But you know, again, we talked about that as a problem of big numbers, right? So, if your numbers, you know, eight billion, doubling eight billion is a is a much harder task than doubling you know one billion dollars in that particular case. So, um, yeah. I, I wish that people were a little bit more honest about how they're kind of putting together these uh, surveys and kind of what their methodologies are and kind of where they get the data from. But, um, you know, there's a lot of these type of things like state of the app, uh, state of the cloud, the DevOps report. There's a bunch of these type of reports out there. And definitely do your homework before you go stout, you know, go touting all those metrics and analytics. That give you. Reminds me of the, the Business Insider Lyft article. There's no mention here of what work's actually been doing. It's been done by these companies. So great, there's 52% more people or there's how many more companies using it. But what are they using it for? Are they using it for like one service or 10 services? Or how many of them are using just Office 365? Right, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or how many of them are, you know, receiving credits for the services they're using? It's it's always been an interesting question to me. Like, you know, how do those credits get applied? You know, to me, there are costs or liability on the books because there are potential, you know, credits against future revenue. But... You know, can you then claim them even though they're not being used as potentially a customer? It is an interesting question. I don't quite understand the accounting uh, practices behind uh, how that works with a credit like that because you know Oracle throws them around all the time when you get into trouble with your Oracle licensing. Uh, Microsoft throws them in on your EA agreement negotiations um, to get you onto the Azure platform. There's, there's definitely it's it's a very common technique that you see in the cloud providers, and I just don't know what the actual rev rec rules are around well if they expire then for sure you're gonna uh you're going to realize all of the revenue after they're expired if there's revenue tied to them 
But if the revenue came from your marketing or cost of goods sold, I don't know that that's actually helping you that much. Yeah, but I mean the the revenue the revenue t- the associated with uh, that product was real revenue. Uh, what's not answered is whether or not the customer would have paid for that service if it wasn't bundled with other services. But for sure, they collected the money, or for sure they invoiced for the money. Obviously, not everybody pays their bills. Yeah, I, I, I'll ask an account. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> now I'm curious. I'll, I'll, I'll have some follow up next week. I'll, I'll reach out to some people I know. Let's move on to the next story. So, uh, Maria DB, CEO Michael Howard, is accusing the hyperscalers of strip mining open source, uh, and he's quoted as saying. Uh, you know they are really abusing the license and privilege of open source for not giving back to the community. Oracle is an example of on-premise lock-in. Amazon is an example of cloud lock-in. Amazon should just be called Oracle Prime. Yeah, I couldn't disagree more. I'm, I'm not in that camp. I think these got, um, you know, I think that the hyperscalers are making it possible. I mean, they're they're hosting providers. The fact that they're big and they're successful, I don't buy that argument. I don't think you should look at those companies um, and say they're they're making significant amount of money by hosting our software and therefore uh you know they're they should be contributing x y z amount or that i mean if anything they're helping more and more people run the software in the first place yeah microsoft and ibm are both sponsors of mariadb notably aws is not what's the alternative i mean like mariadb they don't have their own SaaS offering i can't go to them and say hey you're spinning me up an instance so if my cloud is if my cloud of choice is AWS, then sure, I'd love for them to provide that service for me. It's interesting because you know if in the event that you know they're just deploying MariaDB as an RDS instance, um, you know the tooling and the code that they're writing is really the control plane that would did the provisioning and the replication of the data and and I don't know that that's actually code that's even handled underneath the you know the main licensing that these products are underneath. So, you know, not contributing back this code that lets them you know massively scale MariaDB out to thousands of nodes. I don't know that I consider that to be quite the same thing as you know, hey, they're actually changing the way MariaDB functions in the back end and they're not giving that code back. Yeah, that's in, a different thing. And in fact, they, so the guys I, actually call them out to say, hey, they don't know how to run the service properly. They're they're obviously not making any changes to optimize it for AWS because the performance. They, they claim is um, kind of sucky. He does accuse them as well as purposely hurting MariaDB performance on RDS in favor of the Aurora database. Um, and, you know, it, but then his comment was that, you know, one of their customers that uses MariaDB on our RDS says it's the most vanilla MariaDB around. There's nothing enterprise about it. And we could literally just install MariaDB from source on EC2 and do just as well. I, I don't know that I never assumed that RDS was more than that. RDS has always been you know, we're just spinning up a SQL server for you. We're doing some bare minimum capabilities for backups and replication, but you still have to tune it. You still have to optimize the system in the right ways for your data model to make it work well. So overall, it's a weird argument that he made. And, and you know, maybe they're hurting performance because it is so vanilla and they could do some things to optimize it on the public cloud or on Amazon's public cloud in particular um, to make it more attractive. But then what's the benefit to Amazon to do that? Yeah, zero. Getting back to RSA, Azure announces a preview of a Sentinel security. Uh, this is their reimagined version of a SIM built for the Azure cloud specifically. Uh, it provides intelligence security analytics at cloud scale for your entire enterprise. And it does work in a hybrid environment and collects data from devices, users, apps, and servers. Uh, it eliminates the burden of managing traditional SIM products, including needing to maintain, set up, and scale them. 
is one area that is still dominated by very expensive products. And we've seen this sort of trend with the hyperscaler cloud providers of saying, hey, we can invest in the R&D to effectively give software away at no additional cost if you're using our uh, infrastructure for your main workloads. And um, so far, SIM has not really been consumed by that, but it'll be interesting to see as the providers go. I mean, I couldn't imagine if someone offered me a SIM uh, at a very attractive price if I'm on their platform, uh, not using it. it. Seems like a a great value prop. The visualization looks looks awesome. The the way it kind of integrates the SIM events with the the model of the um, the applications as they're deployed, so you can see how these consequences of anomalies roll through the network and the things they're going to have uh, effects on looks 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 really neat. Yeah, I definitely am hoping that this is an area that all three cloud providers are starting to go down. SIM tools are very expensive and have very little value um, in comparison to the log data that they ingest, and and they have a very specific focus. So, um, you know, they haven't announced any pricing for this, but if it's anywhere competitive against, you know, something like IBM's SIM product or Splunk SIM module or anything like that, I think it would be really interesting for companies. Um, and then also the interesting thing here, too, is they, they do allow you to pull in Office, Office 365 activity as well. Um, so you can get a kind of really end-to-end perspective of your entire uh, enterprise footprint in, in their SIM product. So nice feature. I'm super glad to see this come out. And uh, I hope Amazon yeah. does the same thing at Reinforce. I, I expect this to be basically 10% <laughs> the current cost for SIM at some point. Azure has done a general availability of lab services. Um, so this is an easy setup and provide on-demand access to pre-configured virtual machines to teach a class, train professionals, run hackathons, or provide hands-on labs. Um, there's a couple of benefits of using this solution from Azure. There's automatic management of all the Azure infrastructure and scale, uh, simple experience for your lab users, cost optimizations, and tracking of usage of your labs, and just an overall really nice little solution to get a lab uh, set up for any type of event that you may need to do. Um, the pricing is a little confusing for me. Um, it's 0.01 cents per lab unit, uh, but it you know for do a small instance, which is two cores or four gigs of RAM, um, it basically requires 20 lab units. And so it's basically 20 cents uh, per unit, and that is basically by hour. So if you have 50 students times 130 hours uh, times 20 lab units for the small times a penny each, it basically costs you about $1,300 over a 13-week period to use this service. I kind of wonder if they spun this up because Quick Labs got bought by Google. It definitely feels like this was a response to the fact that Quick Labs got picked up. Um, you know, Quick Labs is very focused on AWS, and we talked last week about their Google stuff they've been doing. Um, but they never had really a good story for Azure. Um, and so I imagine that Am, you know Azure was looking to partner with them in some way as well to make them do labs for Azure, and then they got bought, and so now... You know, this is their answer to now solving that problem. I mean, you look at the QA uh, automation to automate the QA process, and it's kind of similar. So I'd be curious to see, you know, they've got this capability now. Maybe roll in uh, to your developer tools the ability to, you know, do your test automation that with relatively little of your own automation tooling. 
Uh, Jeff Barr, uh, everyone knows, is the evangelist for AWS, uh, stopped by Reddit to, A, first of all, respond to a thread that started a couple weeks ago about CloudFormation feature support lagging uh, way behind of products. And we talked about that here, about MVP capabilities and CloudFormation not being there. Um, so you know, in that thread, basically, people were talking about how, how long it was taking, how frustrated they were with the process, lack of feature development, the complexity of it. And Jeff Barr took some time to really go in and kind of um, answer some of those questions. But he said he would take the feedback back to the general manager of CloudFormation. So he posted an update uh, this week. Uh, basically restating that you know CloudFormation is seen as an essential part of their efforts for infrastructure as a service. Um, they see it as very popular with usage both externally and internally growing at a very fast rate. The team has apparently been very focused on security and operational excellence. And the team, um, even though the team's been working on that, they have been trying to build out uh, their backlog of services and resources. There is apparently another development team working on the future of CloudFormation and what that looks like and reorganizing and refactoring that code. And they are committing now to apparently launch a public GitHub repo similar to what they did for ECS to basically show their schedule and plans for adding CloudFormation support. Um, so overall, I'm, I'm super glad to see them getting a little bit more transparency in CloudFormation in particular, which is uh, needed by a lot of engineers out there to automate their infrastructure. And nothing more frustrating than seeing the features, knowing they're live, and not being able to use them because you have an infrastructure as code only philosophy. Well, and I, I don't have that problem because <laughs> I just use Terraform, who is shockingly fast at uh, developing capabilities for all of the uh, new features. You say that, but I'm sitting here now trying to plan my uh, Route 53 Resolver project, <laughs> and there's no support for rules. <laughs> there's no support for rules yet, which is really kind of uh, crippling me, so... Need to either get on the HashiCorp people or figure out their way around it. But yeah, it's, that's 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 the first time in in a few years that Terraform has lagged behind enough that it, it's a troublesome issue for me. But Jeff hangs it in the um, the AWS Reddit channel quite often. But this is the first time I've really seen him uh, like jump on some something that looked like a bad PR situation. There was a, there was definitely a lot of uh, complaining in that original thread, and I think uh, you know someone tagged him in the thread, and I think he jumped in and saw that you know someone needed to kind of respond and and you know, quell the pitchforks before they became uh, too much. Um, That's well, a huge benefit, right? Huge benefit for CloudFormation over Terraform is that we could yell at CloudFormation all we want. If we yell at Terraform, if we yell at Hashi, uh, they could just respond with, uh, we'd love to accept your pull request. <laughs> <laughs> that is very, very true. Um, you know, you're mentioning that sometimes the Terraform, you know, like in this route resolver rules doesn't help you. Um, I, th I think it was when they first announced EKS or one of the others that I was able to actually go pull a uh, pull request someone else had submitted to actually fix that problem in Terraform and was able to use it a little bit before it got pulled into the main branch. So that is uh, something that you can sometimes do. And if you have a comment thread in the issues of the Terraform repos, uh, they'll sometimes, someone else you'll find out they're working on it and you can collaborate. So there's lots of opportunities in the community to help. Yeah, that's fair enough. And, and CloudFormation has the, the catch-all solution of custom resources. And if you're really desperate for something that CloudFormation doesn't support, you can implement it yourself pretty easily. Andy Jassy uh, stopped by Jim Cramer on CNBC uh, during Mad Money, of course, and talked about Amazon.com's most interesting business is not actually Amazon.com. It's actually Amazon Web Services. Uh, he talked about generated sales of $25 billion in sales up 47% over last year, uh, and that if Amazon was an independent company, it would be 119th on the Fortune 500. So that's uh, pretty interesting. There's a couple other interesting metrics that were thrown out in the, in the video. 
Um, Andy officially confirmed that they've lowered prices 70 times in the last 10 years, uh, which is the first time I see that number be updated in like a little while. I think the last number I saw was like 53 or 54. Uh, and then he also said that Amazon now has a currently has 165 services. So uh, it's, it's about a 10 minute video. I actually would not recommend watching it for most of you. <laughs> I just gave you all the highlights. Uh, and you know Jim Cramer can be a little bit uh, over over hyperbolic at times, um, especially when he gets to the point where he says, you know, Amazon Web Services is probably helping to keep inflation low <laughs> because <laughs> they keep lowering their prices, and lowering prices means that our cust- you know, that's getting passed down to you, the end user. Yeah, that lowering prices thing. I'm not sure they they keep introducing new services. Hey, you know, come spend this money on this extra thing while we lower this price by one cent someplace else. So I'm not I'm not sold on the lowering prices as being meaningful to me in my cloud spend on a month to month basis. It's kind of like going to Safeway and uh, you know a gallon of milk costs you eight dollars unless you're a member, and then it costs you three dollars. You know, it's great. You save five dollars today. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> But they still haven't lowered the price of um, network network bandwidth. Yeah, we talked about that. That's still a big area they need to lower prices in. I think it's because they don't own it. Perhaps I think right. they wish to do more about VPC to um, to their own API endpoints. But even then, if you look at their price for per gigabit of egress traffic or ingress traffic from into the internet, um, those prices are pretty high for what you can get them in a colo. Um, now, I mean, I, I'm not trying to run, you know, 60 gigabits per second pipes in from, you know, level three or those type of people into my data centers. Uh, but, you know, in the 10 gig or less market, that those prices are significantly cheaper. So um, it may be a factor of the, the pipe they're putting into their data centers or it's a factor of they're just um, able to make really good margin on that. Right. It's sort of like when you go to uh, Disneyland and they tell you that uh, basically they can pay for the entire operating costs of the park per year from the parking lot <laughs> that's awesome uh, so so maybe amazon pays for the whole thing with just the network yeah uh, maybe maybe. That's, maybe that's the way the whole thing everything else on top of that is just you know profit margin and finally a couple more rsa announcements from asia this week they were definitely very active at rsa uh, first of all, they added some new capabilities to the Azure Security Center. Three new things. Uh, the first is machine learning to reduce attack surfaces. So basically, if you create a security group uh, that basically allows you to have you know, many, many ports open between two different nodes, it'll actually use machine learning and analysis to see what data is traversing between those servers and will dynamically uh, reduce the ports that are open to that server, reducing the attack vector. The uh, next one is the adaptive application control, which um, provides automated end-to-end application whitelisting, image hardening, and allows applications allowed to run on specific instances. So if you're not allowed to work on server, the database server isn't allowed to work on a web server, for example, you can prevent that in the adaptive application control. Um, And it does work in both Windows and Linux and can also be used in your private data center um, in audit mode only there, though. And then the third part of this announcement was the network map now supports VNet peering. So this is a visualization that they provide that shows how your instances are connected to their VPCs and to your backbone and I don't want some tool randomly closing my ports that I have open just because I haven't used it in a while. I mean, how does it know that I don't have some device out there that, that needs to connect to this once every six months to check in? I don't know. It's like, I think there's, there, there should be other protections than, than locking down fire, firewall rules like this. But yeah, 
okay, in general. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely, it's a little, I, I have the same thought you did. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to have as an outage and then tell them, well, you know, over the weekend, you didn't use the web server. And so we blocked port 443 for you. Um, I do think it allows you to guarantee some ports um, in its capability, but, uh, or it may also be very just alerting you to saying, hey, the server has these extraneous ports open. Are you sure you want them to be open? Um, I don't know if you had to always automate it. I don't know. It, it seems like it seems like solving the problem with the wrong layer. Like I get I get security in layers, but uh, if you need the port open because the service is is listening there, then then you need authentication and authorization in a different layer. So yeah, I don't know. I just I, I dislike that feature, but um, that the hybrid nature of the whole thing that's that's pretty neat. Uh, it seems like they're Azure deploying more and more services which work. Um, Cross data centers. All of the AI and ML driven um, security products, I think, are are so going to be so attractive to the market when we have uh, individual organizations who are held to account for the security of their corporation or their entity, and at the same time, every single business unit is spinning up all sorts of stuff, doing all sorts of different things. And the complexity that's going on now um, and the rate of change is so high that uh, writing all of your own rules uh, seems like it's going to be very challenging to keep up uh, on the keep up with that wave. And so ML and AI driven security models, I think are uh, definitely the future. And then I'm sure there's going to be some bumps along the way, though, as you just described. And then their final security announcement uh, is some new features for their Azure Firewall product. Um, the first one is actually one that I would love Amazon to actually get. Uh, this is a threat intelligence-based filtering. So this pulls data from both the Azure internal threat intelligence system and as well as third-party subscriptions that Microsoft has with uh, other analysis companies. Uh, it can now alert and block traffic coming from malicious IPs and domains to your website, and that can be set up in the rules dynamically. Um, by default, if you turn this on, it just alerts you, uh, but you can configure it to alert and deny this traffic. So um, this is a similar problem we're trying to solve in my day job, where we have to basically write our own custom bits of code to get from the Amazon uh, intelligent threat intelligence dashboarding data to the WAF to basically then block the IP address um, that we're seeing coming through the WAF. So this is a nice feature. I do hope this one makes it to Amazon someday in the future, uh, which would be great. They also added the ability to do uh, service tag filtering. So this allows you to basically specify, you know, I would like Azure SQL to be able to connect to the service or the service to connect to Azure SQL uh, and or things like the key vault, et cetera. So imagine in the Amazon space, you know, I like you to be able to connect to RDS and not worry about the IP address of that uh, RDS instance in particular. This is now all, this Azure firewall is now fully integrated into the Azure monitor. Firewall logs can be set to the log analytics system or stored into the blob objects. So pretty nice uh, little firewall features here. I, I like that. Without um, without some kind of outbound proxy for doing layer seven filtering, it's really hard to to have firewalls that make sense to still give you access to to um, the the APIs, you know, the service APIs, whichever whichever provider they're running in. And so um, this is this is really cool. Service tags filtering is is a great feature. I guess it's, it shows more and more of a trend towards software-defined networking. And that threat intelligence filtering, so so Azure is going to maintain their own list of known malicious IPs. Is that right? Yeah, so Azure, uh, they have their own threat detection. 
and they also are subscribing to third parties for that data. So I wonder if so I wonder if uh, you know Amazon's got their managed rule sets for their WAF. I wonder if there's any providers right now offering real time uh, dynamic uh, blacklisted IPs for malicious IPs. There are um, some WAF subscriptions you can get for AWS that provide that to you. And that, those are subscription services that they announced at reInvent two years yeah. ago. Um, and I don't remember exactly the name or with the, you know, how much those cost, but they are out there. But um, they're third party only. They're not pulling in Amazon threat intelligence as well. Right. I guess you got to think that the more people that adopt services like this, the more data they have to collect, the, the more threats they can identify and the more they can enrich their own list of, of uh, malicious IPs. And so the, the more people who use it, the more valuable it becomes to everybody. For you, the listeners of the CloudPod podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook downloaded with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod for your free audiobook. Let's move right along to the lightning round. All right. We got a short but sweet list this week, so uh, someone's going to have to wow me with a, with a good one here. Let's start with Amazon Worklink now works with Android phones. Has anyone deployed it for iPhone? I mean, I guess maybe they're hoping for adoption on Android because I, I don't know anybody who's actually using this yet. <laughs> Aurora Serverless now publishes logs to CloudWatch. Like, where else was he going to publish them to? That's the logging service. <laughs> I love that. I do like that, you know, the serverless server now requires another server to hold its logs. It's great. I know. I want a logless solution. I have to say that server, Aurora serverless, didn't they come out at reInvent and they just now got to CloudWatch logs? Like, wow. People were bitching about the uh, CloudFormation up above. Like, they, they should be complaining about how long it took to get this into CloudWatch logs. Yeah. Does Aurora server full support logs <laughs> so to CloudWatch? Yeah. <laughs> that is the opposite of serverless serverful uh okay amazon document db now supports aggregations in arrays and indexing this is why lyft is able to go all in (laughs) sorry mongo yeah the the competition begins Good, good luck with the new license agreement there aws ssm now supports document sharing across accounts. Why did they decide that runbooks should be called documents? Like it is the worst naming of this feature. Like it, this, they're just scripts. That's all they are. Why do we call them documents? They're just a set of like these are the twelve things I want my my action to take based on an alert or an event, and automate it. it it's just ridiculous that they're calling it documents, and then it gets confused with document DB and work docs and all the other things they call documents. There's this is bad. <laughs> When, when are when are we going to get over the uh, multi-account nomenclature and just say an org is an account? <laughs> Long time. Uh, that scares me. Just a little aside, the whole resource sharing between accounts, like you can share a resource to, to anyone in your org if, if given the right permissions. And if there's some kind of automation that looks for a VPC or looks for a particular subnet with a particular name or something like that, um, some some random person in another account can share that resource to the entire org. It shows up in your account and breaks your automation, and you'll never know what happened. I, I love the the sharing between accounts that they've implemented recently, but I'm scared to death by it. Well, it'll become the next you know open to the internet Elasticsearch, open S3 bucket 
disaster that someone will will run into at some point. Okay, AWS Performance Insights now supports T2 and T3 instances. Only one press release for this. How about a big red button that says you're out of CPU credits? Can I get that? Step one, get off a of T2, T3 if it's high performance. Done. <laughs> uh, Amazon QuickSight now supports row-level security, enabled email reports, and new analytics capabilities. The worst thing that ever happened to reporting email <laughs> reports. What is row-level security in an email report? <laughs> what is security in an email? I want to know. <laughs> you know, I, I I tried to read through this like three times, and I was really trying to understand what they meant by row level security, and they don't even explain it well in the press release. I'm assuming if you subscribe to a report and you get sent the report, but you didn't have row level security clearance for the report, then the report will be filtered to pull out the rows that you were not allowed to see. That is, that is that that's the closest answer that I was able to come to as well. So your your interpretation is about the same as mine. So if that's what it is, then we we've got this. That's nailed. pretty good because I didn't read the article, <laughs> so I I'm proud of myself for that. I'd like to think it was that. But if it's not, then that, that's what it should be. But how does it know? How does it know which which IAM person belongs to which email? Address? Yeah. So this was this was in there. So apparently you specify who has access to the report when you configure it, and so you can then specify by select all the people who have access to the report to then get it as email. Um, or you can specify one or two. That sounds, that sounds far too complicated. It, it did seem a little complicated. Uh, it didn't seem very quick sightish. It seemed uh, a little bit like long sightish. Trying to see the latest data with yes. the console. All right, Peter. Uh, that was a quick lightning round this week because we, you know, the big stories this week. So what's uh, who's the winner? Yep, that was quick. Uh, I did terrible as usual. Jonathan <laughs> literally quit halfway through. So Justin, you are the winner <laughs> by default. Not by default. You 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 made it happen. You you forced Jonathan to submit like halfway through. You tapped him out. It was yeah, awesome. It was just like when Corey was here and he just had nothing. Just just nothing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And let's move on to uh, cool tools with Jonathan. What are we doing for cool tools? We're doing leftovers. Leftovers. Yes. Why don't we talk? About, why don't we start with what it is and then start? Oh with sure. <laughs> Should we talk about what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this week's cool tool is leftovers. It's a Go CLI and library for cleaning up orphaned. Uh, resources deployed by Terraform. Oh, awesome. The cool thing about it is that it can clean up resources that aren't orphaned as well. I was running through it a little bit, um, not running on my machine because I'm not a big Go user. So unfortunately, that was kind of an issue. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that all of these tools become so much more important as we start getting these, especially in our sandbox environments. We've got several sandbox accounts with tons of stuff in it. Um, uh, super cool to be able to get through and, and clean these up, get rid of, especially things like, uh, EBS volumes when often Terraform leaves EBS volumes behind, uh, we need to clean up. Otherwise our bills run out of control. Yeah. It's frustrating that default was to, it was to not terminate those, um, EBS volumes when the instance is terminated. That's, that's caught a lot of people out over the years. Yeah, we had customers run into service limits on those. It was like, what? How can we be out of room EBS volumes? Oh, we're tearing and we're te we're building and tearing down uh, dev environments all the time, and had no idea we're just leaving behind the EBS volumes. Yeah, so it's kind of nice that it works cross cross uh, cloud and also uh, uh, vSphere. I'm slightly concerned that um, I mean, I guess you could do a lot of damage with this, and there's a there's a disclaimer. 
but you pro essentially provide a filter for the uh, the environment name or some other attribute, and then it lists all the resources that match the pattern. So be careful when you use it because clearly it will it will reap things that are not necessarily orphaned. I, I, my only complaint is that they aren't using profiles, <laughs> and so I, I really don't want to have to specify access keys and secret access keys across my systems. Uh, but yeah, overall, I think it's a nice tool and definitely something that you know. We had a, an engineer who lost their TF state file, and so this was a nice way to be able to go clean that all up uh, quickly without having to go into the GUI and click on a bunch of boxes. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jonathan. That's a great tool. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Audible.com. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod. <laughs>